Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dean Kernett with us on the, st- on the state of Wall Street. How quiet is quiet right now? Give us a historical, I mean, August is always quiet. Is it like worst ever? It's a, it's a considerably quiet period when you look at the day-to-day fluctuations in the S&P 500. Um, to come across a 1% move, you've got to go back 26 days. It doesn't happen all, all that often. It's, yeah. it's pretty rare. And, you know, that kind of feeds back into one Do I have to be here? A lot of traders are asking themselves, should I be here if there's no volatility? And two, I can't get away from the the way in which the quiet markets reinforce behavior. In other words, the the chief risk officer who's... who, one of his tasks is to back book, hedge the, all the risk in the book. Mm-hmm. He's looking and saying, you know, these option prices are low. The VIX has come down, but it's still not worth it uh, because the market's not bare. Not worth it what? It's to, not worth it to outlay premium for hedges. To spend money on a hedge to protect myself. That's right. Some would say it's, you know, flood insurance in a drought. Okay. Right? There's, I love it's that. It's cheap. Oh, that's going to be a Twitter thing. That's brilliant. It's, it's cheap insurance, but... It, it never rains. And that's what really a concern I have is that the market's quiet right now is it's a it's reinforcing behavior. It's basically uh, for the folks that have been spending premium, they've been burned, especially post Brexit as the market's levitated. And now as they've continued to go up, but but really more in a, a muted fashion, even a 12 handle VIX uh, is not worth it. And that's a challenge <clears throat> within this is the idea of framing August we get to October or September, and a lot can happen on the way. I get that. And then you got to do your budgets for the end of the year, figure out the bonai payment. In February, do you just anticipate right-sizing layoffs, firings on Wall Street within the quiet? I think it's a challenging period for both the buy side and the sell side. You've got a world deprived of nominal return. There's no interest to be had. Uh, and uh, the markets are increasingly efficient as well. Uh, there's just so much capital looking after, you know, even the slightest dislocation. It's been a very challenging year for <clears throat> long short equity strategies, the alpha generation. Uh, but for the sell side, the folks that make their uh, money uh, moving positions right. around, this volume is very difficult. But does it reaffirm, if I'm Gary Schilling or Steve Major at HSBC, I buy a bond, screw the hedging of Dean Kernett, and the puppy goes up in price, down in yield. And if I just buy a portfolio of Dow S&P ETFs, like, say, David Kotak at Cumberland Advisors, those share prices go up as well. Why hedge? It's a great question. What I would say is there's still lots and lots of vulnerabilities in the world. If you look around and you look at uh, the way in which the financial system uh, has evolved, uh, you know, starting with Europe, you've got um, just a, a massive growth in inflation shortfall. Uh, a lot of confidence in Mario Draghi. That's the, you know, uh, he as a central bank leader, I think, has done uh, an admirable job trying to backstop mm-hmm. the system. But you've got, you know, significant uh, demographic challenges there. You've got no growth engine, very little credit channel. Um, so that's just one area. And, you know, it's, it's a taped together monetary system. <clears throat> China which it's interesting to watch the narrative evolve. You know, earlier in the year, China was melting down, and that was causing uh, havoc in, in our markets as well. Yeah. And this was Yellen basically saying, we've got to watch 
global events as well. Well, look what's happened. The, the VIX is melting away, and yet the CNH is also declining. The currency is, has been weakening, but it's doing so slowly. And so the market's convinced itself, okay, in my list of things to worry about, China is off the list. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the, the buildup of leverage and debt in China okay. is, is something to be careful of. You on. are the maximum mathy, sophisticated guy we deal with. For mere mortals... Do they go to cash? That's the human emotion of the doom crew. Go to cash. I mean, some people outright short. Doug Cass talking about that uh, last week. But for mere mortals, they they got to participate. Is the cash flow, the dividends, the buybacks enough to justify? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's really challenging, right? The cash, <coughs> it's very, cash is very expensive when you, you earn nothing. Yeah. The opportunity cost is very high. Stocks are expensive, too. It's a, it's, a, it's a quandary. I would say, you know, look, for most institutional allocators, their business is allocating capital right. to risk. Um, so it's really difficult to be, okay. you know, un, uninvested in the market. Let's go back 30 years and round it down to 29. August of 1987, I'm up. Can you buy now portfolio insurance? What a quaint phrase that sure. is, Dean. Can you buy portfolio insurance to protect your up? Because you're worried about the doom and gloom? Yeah, so I, I would say that uh, if, if you're looking to hedge, you can't hedge all the time. Um, the, the math of, of options suggests that they are ultimately expensive relative to what the market experiences. However, there are times, and we would say based on careful macro analysis, that you can design hedges for specific reasons. Right. And I think, you know, Part of your hedging budget might include out-of-the-money puts on the S&P 500, but you've got to be more clever than that as well. You've got to think about global disruption, things like China, you know, setting up currencies potentially uh, on the CNH. What Dean Kernett just said there, folks, is the number one derivatives knowledge point you need to know. You can't hedge all the time because the cost of doing the hedge accumulates, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, just on a first-order condition. It's, it's the, both the quiet markets right now, which are very difficult for hedgers, and it turns out that, let's just say 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. the folks that were buying hedges in panic <clears throat> were paying 50, 60, right. 70 for the VIX. And even though the, the, the market's still moving around, <coughs> you're paying so much for the insurance that it turns out you lose money as One well. of the charms of Nassim Taleb, with all of his brilliance on framing the dynamics of the derivative market is making little bets. How do you respond to people that say, I want to bet big? We've seen Mr. Ackman and others challenged by that versus Nassim saying, I want to buy little out-of-the-money bets that have ginormous payoffs. Well, I would be in Nassim Taleb's camp, especially the way he frames this notion of anti-fragile. Yeah. Right. He's basically saying that optionality, being long options, the right to change your mind is an option, is an anti-fragile. It actually gains value when the system gets hit and damaged. And there's not a lot of other assets like that. Most of uh, finance is about shocks and the way right. in which the asset prices respond <clears throat> to the shocks. They certainly don't, get, they don't go up when shocked. Optionality, uh, Taleb's out-of-the-money puts, those can go up. Uh, hugely in value on a shock. About 100 pages into his brilliant anti-fragile is the idea of a cardboard box shipped through the mail. And the reason you have a cardboard box is you know it's going to get banged up. If I know my portfolio is going to get banged up, how do you you right now protect yourself with a portfolio cardboard box? Right. So I'm inclined right now, as as clients ask me, what should I do from a hedging standpoint? A lot of them are focused Mm -hmm. now out to year end. So as we think about 
you know, a, a portfolio of trades out to year end that's a good uh, way of spending option premium, um, provides good bang for the buck into a risk off. We're thinking about different scenarios. One is the election. Um, you know, we think that uh, Trump doesn't have a strong chance of winning, mm -hmm. but the markets almost in Pavlovian re uh, fashion would respond negatively. Um, and so there's certain hedges you can set up that are geared towards year end, specifically isolating the election. Right. So the election is very unique in the, in the sense that it's like Brexit. It's a date on the calendar that could have significant macro yeah. uh, implications. But we know the date. We know when it's coming. And so you can design what they call calendar option trades uh, right. around the date. Um, well, you were talking about the, the cost of hedging in uh, the last segment. And Mark Chandler out with a really smart note this morning from Brown Brothers Harriman, noting that uh, everybody's attributing the yen move to the Fed, but Fed expectations have not changed for the past week or two. And what he's suggesting, and I'll run this by you, Dean, is that um, there's a lot of maturing treasuries this month, going to put about $30 billion back into the market. And he's noting that because of the cost of hedging U.S.-denominated investments, that money's not going to be coming here. It's going back home. And that's why we're not only seeing the yen, but the euro yep. and the pound stronger today. Yeah, I think from a flow of funds uh, standpoint, that uh, is, is, a, is a good explanation. You know, there was a lot of capital that uh, came in to buy treasuries just on the notion that, uh, and this was capital that uh, originated in, in uh, Japan, it came in to buy treasuries because the yield advantage had gotten to be uh, that's significant. And even when you factored in some of the uh, attendant currency hedging costs, uh, there was still an advantage. That advantage uh, has diminished uh, quite a bit. So you can see that uh, there at least is some uh, potential that uh, capital that's being repatriated back to Japan uh, is, uh, is a part of the stronger yen story. And is that hedging cost going to continue to tighten given uh, the dynamics we're seeing? Or do we get another opportunity, another bite at the apple? I think what to me what's really interesting is this notion of globalized uh, central bank policy. Uh, in other words, and I think the, the Fed's about face in March was this notion that uh, we, we may uh, want to tighten at a certain pace and trajectory, but uh, the weakness that's uh, in some of our you know, main uh, trading partners, their currencies, is going to be something that we're going to have to start to look at as well. Uh, so I think, you know, the Fed has decided it can't operate monetary policy in a vacuum. It's paying, I think, a lot of attention to, to China uh, specifically. Uh, but it's it's got, you know, the currency on its mind in a way that uh, I don't think we've seen before. And right now, again, this is back to U.S. equities. You have this, for the time being, this kind of Goldilocks where uh, the Fed is in town uh, for as long as the market needs it to be in town. And yet earnings, um, while this will be the fifth straight year-on-year um, -year, uh, earnings quarter decline, first time this happened since 2008 to 2009, uh, earnings are still high. And uh, the multiple is, is firm, especially in an environment where there's just no yield to be had in any other market. So it's, it's supportive for equities. Well, that raises the question of how high can you go based on a – central bank put. You've got uh, everybody from Jeff Goodlock to Bill uh, Gross to, you know, uh, all kinds of people saying sell uh, now because it's too dangerous out there. Right. I think uh, shorting the S&P 500 on valuation alone, I think, is probably not the right uh, way to th think about putting, putting the trade on. Uh, you know, there's got to be some uh, hiccup to the risk-taking environment where folks decide, okay, look, the signals I'm getting from the central banks that have been so 
dominant over the past many years, this low for longer, and essentially the way in which Bernanke calls it the portfolio balance channel, essentially forces money into risky assets uh, that, uh, you know, is really desperate to earn some some carry. Okay, so in your library at home, in my library, we've got Graham Dodd and Cottle from another time and place. We've got you know, Ben Graham in his books, maybe Warren Buffet uh, pontificating. You and I mentioned Nassim Taleb uh, er, the earlier. And then we got all our economic textbooks. I would suggest those books aren't linked right now. The orthodoxy of the Dean Kernett world is turned upside down. The orthodoxy of the Michael McKee world is turned upside down. Yeah, let's go back uh, 20, 30 years and think about the way in which Fed policy interacted with the economy and with markets. Business cycles ended because inflation started uh, to peek its head out, and then the Fed had to jump in and quote pull away the punch bowl. Right, you sound like Tony Dwyer. Well, you know this is this is old school, right? This is the Fed decides. Okay, we've got to you know uh, nip these incipient pricing pressures in the bud. We're going to raise the funds rate. That's going to cause the back end of the yield curve to sell off as well. And then stocks viewing you know tighter economic conditions and the Fed wanting to decelerate uh, economic growth, stocks sell off. And so think about that. That's a a positive correlation between stock and bond prices. What you have now is quite the opposite. You have this incredibly, we were talking about this, Tom, earlier, this incredibly negative correlation between stock and bond prices day to day. Mm -hmm. They're minus 50% correlated. The big concern I have, and and we have generally at Macro Risk Advisors, is that stock and bond prices, while they say different things about the economy, they are ultimately linked to the same thing which is the Fed and other central banks have made the safe assets scarce. Mike, would you explain to Mr. Kernett and her break that those markets are linked to lunch at Jackson Hole on Saturday? (laughs) That's what they're they're linked to. Dean Kernett, Macro Risk Advisors, with some really important wisdom there. We were on Yen Watch all morning. It finally did break through 100 and has held there. Uh, and it's been a resistance point up to this point. So maybe uh, it, is, it is on with the show now. It is unique. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of questions here. It's like Dow 10,000. But yeah. frankly, Mike, I'd say it's a bigger deal. And as <laughs> is, uh, one of our listeners, Neil, said, there's a history here of, of going ever stronger. Well, once it breaks through, there's a tendency for it to continue going. Uh, Jane Foley is a senior currency strategist at Rabobank. She's joining us from London. And um, we've talked about the end quite a bit in the past. A lot of people attributing this to interest rate differentials, the Fed, et cetera. But as people uh, have noted, uh, we're not seeing Fed expectations change. So there's got to be something else going on here that is uh, giving a boost to the yen. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we can, we can perhaps uh, look at the dollar today and say, well, there's some dollar weakness today, and that may have been the trigger. But really, the underlying factors here, are, I think, are around really all about the, the, the yen. And certainly, I think if we go back to the start of the year, I think we see something quite interesting evolve in, in, in the yen. And, and that was, if you recall, at the start of the year, we had a big sell-off in, in stock markets, and the yen behaved as you would expect it to behave. There was a lot of safe haven buying, and the yen strengthened. 
But come February, the risky assets, the stock markets were recovering. Now, normally you'd see money come back out of the yen because it's a safe haven uh, a currency, but it didn't. It stayed very much in the yen. And that has been a problem, I think, for Japanese uh, authorities all year. The yen yeah. remained firm, even when risk appetite okay. has been good. I, I want to do a clinic here. When Japan intervenes, they, You're saying when? they buy dollars and push Japanese yen out into the system, right? Mm-hmm. And that make there's too many yen, so the price weakens, which in this case is 99, 100, 101, 102. Where do they get those dollars? When they buy dollars, who do they buy them from? Well, I mean, they, they have a balance sheet. I don't think that would necessarily be the biggest problem for them, at least not in, in the first round. I mean, they, they would be selling yen. They could, be, they could potentially be printing yen and just buying yeah. the dollars on the market. But the big problem for them would be what reaction would there be from the U.S. Treasury? And given the, 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 the comments that we've had from the U.S. Treasury in recent months, the U.S. Treasury right. would not be willing to support that type of intervention at all. Okay. In I totally agree on an international basis. On a domestic basis, you do it sterilized or unsterilized. And, folks, all you got to know is there's an effect of intervention, whether they do it at 95 or 90 or 67. But, but Jane Foley, help me here with the ramifications of currency intervention to the Japanese people and their domestic economy. Well, the, the idea would be weaken the yen and therefore the exporters export more. Because if you think about domestic demand, now in a country like Japan, a bit like the U.S., domestic demand is, is hugely important. The Germans, for instance, export a, a lot more as a percentage of their GDP. Yeah. Domestic demand is huge. But in Japan, you've got a population that is shrinking. They've got the worst aging demographics in, in the developed world. The population is shrinking, and therefore it's very difficult right. for them to keep on stimulating demand. So you could argue that well, maybe they do need to turn to exports, but then you get into the whole conversation about a currency war. Everybody's trying to do the same thing. I would not only take that, but I would also go to uh, the weighting that you would ascribe to higher interest rates if they unilaterally intervene on yen. Is that a legitimate concern? Or is Japan big enough to manage higher interest rates as a second or third round effect? They certainly wouldn't want to do that. They certainly don't want to do that. There's a lot of problems with intervention. There's yeah. a political aspect that I mentioned before. Um, but there is, of course, the, the, the point of view that it may not work. Okay. Jane Foley with us. We're getting a clinic from uh, Foley of Rabobank on uh, ramifications of a strong currency in what Japan can do to intervene. If you look at other currencies, Jane, looking back 20 years on sterling, which has its own soap opera right now, we're now out to massive yen strength against sterling. Really only one other time in two decades, I'm going to call it 2012, where we saw this equivalency. <clears throat> Can they jawbone other nations to assist in a weaker yen? I don't think that that would work right now, really, because every country, well, not every country, but every country in the developed world certainly is, is grappling now with, with very low inflation. Now, if you, want to, if you want to fix your inflation issues, your low inflation issues, then generally speaking, you want a weak currency. If the other nations were to agree to uh, intervention to uh, further, uh, to, 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 to make the yen softer, what they'd be agreeing to is, is a stronger currency for themselves. And that's 
something that no country in, in the developed world really wants right now, and that's going to be the case until invent, uh, inflation pushes higher. And that is a big issue for for the U.S. I mean, U.S. inflation might be a little bit higher than some other countries, but it's certainly pretty soft. And until U.S. inflation picks up, well, the U.S. Treasury isn't going to really want to support a, a significantly stronger dollar. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. Um they're not going to go anywhere unless they get the U.S. to participate. And the U.S. isn't going to participate, I would think, because a weaker dollar is kind of what they want right now. Exactly. And you can go back to the February G20 with this. Um, there seemed to be a lot of pressure from uh, the U.S. against intervention for Japan, uh, partly because I think the U.S. at that point were beginning to see uh, pressure, probably from U.S. corporates, against the dollar strength in, in 2015. So the U.S. Have, have, have really tried to push back this notion that Japan um, needed intervention. So Japan went, I think, with the, with the issue that maybe that they could have some coordinated fiscal spending instead by various other central banks. But that one, although politically might, might have been a little bit easier, it certainly didn't wash either. Many countries still maintaining this post-financial uh, crisis idea that we need to have fiscal austerity. How do you define currency war? Well, again, currency war is, is a symptom, really, of central banks running out of policy and finding it very difficult to 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 stimulate growth and inflation and whereas normally in a normal environment they would just cut interest rates once interest rates run out of of steam well they look for other instruments and quantitative easing is one but a currency war is, is perhaps a, a natural byproduct of the fact that normal central bank instruments aren't really working the Bank of Japan calculates uh, an effective exchange rate along with the, 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 the exchange rate pairs. That has not really fallen uh, all that much. No. It did drop a little bit after the Brexit vote, but it's come back up again. So does the Bank of Japan have the same concerns that perhaps currency traders do about what impact this has on the Japanese economy? Well, one of the issues that Japan has, I mean, all countries have big concerns about their, their currency and its impact on their economy. But one of the big issues that Japan has, and, and, this, and Switzerland the same, is that they perhaps have less control over their currency because people buy their currencies for safe haven. And that means that even with negative interest rates, if people are uh, feeling pressured or that they're wary of political uh, yeah. crisis, etc., they will buy that <clears throat> currency. And that means the central bank finds it very difficult right. to offset those flows. Jane, on an August morning, on a lazy August Tuesday where we get this news on yen, is this a jump condition? Is it a brutal triche-like move? Or is the yen working within a measured vector where things are normal and quiet? Which, which way does that cut at 99.88? I, th I think it very much depends on the time frame that you're looking at it. If Again, if you go back to that effective exchange rate, the Bank of Japan's effective exchange rate, although it's been strengthening this year, last year it hit the lowest level since 1973. So the, the Japanese yen, on many measures, is an undervalued currency. Now, that doesn't seem to, to sit comfortably with that, this notion that yen strength has pushed through 100. But as it stands on many measures, it's not overvalued, unlike the Swiss franc, which is. And that alone means that uh, intervention okay. is not going to be appreciated. Well, by so the that's a headline there. But we got to translate that. That's important. Yeah. Are you suggesting, uh, Ms. Foley, that at 99.88, a proper value of yen is 95? 
Well, again, see, when we, we're, we're so used to thinking of the dollar-yen uh, exchange rate cost that we really must try and think about this in, in terms of other cost rates. China, for instance, is, is a more important trading partner to Japan now than, than the U.S. is. So perhaps we should be looking at that exchange rate. And perhaps it's what the Chinese do to their currency over the next six months the same year. It's going to be the most important thing to watch for, for the Bank of Japan and, and the Ministry of Finance because that is going to be really uh, critical as to see how uh, the, the yen really is and, and, and how the exporters in Japan are going to feel, how much pain they're going to feel. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at um, the price of uh, a yen in Chinese renminbi and it gets stronger. Absolutely. And that, again, again is because of the uh, that loose peg, if you like, between um, the renminbi and the U.S. dollar. But that is a real issue, I think, for the Japanese uh, authorities going going further out. If China uh, fears for its growth, and if it does start to allow the renminbi to fall further, that's going to be a real struggle for the Japanese authorities. So I go back to currency war. I mean, you know, what we try to do here in surveillance, folks, is not just look at the major uh, pairs. I, I'm going to assume, Jane, 100 out of 100 of our audience um, uh, doesn't follow yen renminbi, but the fact is, yen's strength has given up, what, 40% of Abinomics within that yeah. relationship? Yeah, yeah. And it's a real problem. And, and also we've got to remember, it's not just the levels. I mean, in, in our world, we watch the levels. But from the central bank's or a treasury's point of view, it's often the pace of the moves that is important. Now, if this break through this level triggers a more significant move lower, that's what's going to be really worrying to those authorities, the pace of the move more than the absolute measure itself. I, mean, I, I look at this, Jane, and, and I'm going to go back to a question I asked you a couple of minutes ago. There's got to be, a, and I've been talking, folks, for days about adjacencies with Japan. I mean, this is it. You've got to have adjacencies if that currency advances anymore. Well, again, there's a very important policy meeting next month by the Bank of Japan. Now, what they've said about this policy meeting is that they want to sit down and they want to examine the pass-through mechanisms of monetary policy. Why isn't mm -hmm. it working? Now, um, this is this is going to be key, really, to see what they decide. But there is a lot of speculation out there that they could perhaps alter the parameters of, of monetary policy. Right now, monetary policy is all about increasing the money supply. Many people are saying, well, maybe that's, that's not right right now for, for, for Japan. Maybe instead they should have some sort of target to try and keep bond yields lower. Maybe that should be more effective. But whatever way you look at it, whatever you think they may do, yeah, people come in against the constraints that quantitative easing potentially is running out of steam when they already own yeah. about a third of all outstanding JGBs, and they own so many well, ETFs that they are now a, a big owner of so many of the Nikkei 225 companies. Can people play this? I mean, do you have a yen trade where you take this theory and apply it to making money? Well, my yen trade really for the last few months has been there's a significant risk of more yen strength. If we head into the U.S. elections, if there's more political uncertainty surrounding that, yeah. more reason to buy the yen as well. So uh, there's, there's yeah. a lot of events out there to suggest that the yen could remain firm for a long time yeah. unless the Bank of Japan can pull a rabbit out of the sleeve at its meeting next month. Uh, Jane Foley, thank you. This has been a clinic, folks, on some of the ramifications of uh, – Intervention and, of course, uh, Ms. Foley making the key distinction uh, between uh, a coordinated intervention response, which nobody's talking about, 
in a unilateral intervention, which is she stated, uh, Mr. Liu and the Treasury would probably go, hmm, what, what, did, what did Hook say in Peter Pan? Bad form. That's what Mr. Liu would say. Something happened in the second quarter, Tom, to housing. When the GDP numbers came out, and they were, of course, a lot lower than people thought, 1.2%, you looked at the chart, and residential housing, which had been rising at double-digit rates in quarter after quarter after quarter, was down 6.1%. Uh, first subtraction from GDP in a couple of years. Uh, everybody wondering if that was maybe because the weather was bad in the in the second quarter or, or what's going on. We get the first look at uh, housing in the third quarter, uh, with July housing starts this morning, uh, they are expected to be down. It, it has housing rolled over? Doug Duncan is the chief economist at Fannie Mae. He joins us now. Doug, uh, do we know what's happened to housing? Uh, I mean, we, we got mortgage rates at record lows. Yeah, it's certainly not an affordability per perspective or problem from a rates perspective. Uh, there is a supply problem. Um, and the relationship of that to the uh, to the business to the residential fixed investment is, um, I think, driven through two things. One is the availability and cost of lands for development, uh, and the second one is to increase supply further. You're going to have to have more skilled labor, and actually, builders are telling you the number of builders telling you they're having a hard time finding skilled labor is actually increasing. If you're going to try to increase output, you're going to have to have more skilled people to manage your unskilled people. If you already had a constraint problem, it gets worse as you try to expand further. Well, so, it, 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 do we start to see a comeback here? Well, we've, we, you know, our theme for this year has been housing affordability constraints as the expansion matures. We're really late cycle. This is now the fourth longest economic expansion since World War II. Um, and there's a number of indicators in the economy that look pretty toppy. Ha um, autos seem to have topped. It's, uh, um, industrial production uh, seems to have talked. Business fixed investment, which never got very strong uh, uh, to begin with, has been on the move down. Housing is uh, residential construction is moving in sync with that. It's not to say that there's going to be a recession, but certainly we're not in the camp that uh, suggests yeah. we've seen some robust second half. Let's come back to industrial production in a minute. In a minute. Uh, Doug Duncan, I made a chart today comparing starts to the combination of starts in existing homes. And it's an extraordinary chart of how starts are less than they used to be. What mm -hmm. was in the oxygen in the late 70s? In pre-recession, early '80s, where starts were just huge, was it a was it a tax incentive? Well, uh, you had a couple of things. One is you had a lot less regulation uh, for development, um, and uh, you certainly had uh, didn't have the environmental restrictions, for example, that you see on development today. And you saw a, a run-up from a slow uh, period of building and the the Said so the boomers were coming into uh, into their own uh, in that time period as a, a homeowner group, so you saw a significant boost in in demand and a, a much more uh, development friendly environment. Yeah, well said. I mean, I agree with with everything you've said. 
do you as a policymaker and, and your group feel we need to rekindle that boom in new home sales? Or is where we are now normal? Well, I don't think we're uh, uh, we're at a place where you can see the construction of starter homes in the way that you did, and the data support that. the The average house size being built today is uh, over, is uh, bigger than it was prior to the uh, to the Great Recession. Uh, why is that? Well, you have to, as a builder, you have to be able to spread the costs uh, per square foot out. Uh, at, uh, at a point that the household that's your intended household for sale uh, can afford it, and uh, the increase in uh, upfront development cost uh, has made uh, ha- has driven to larger house sizes. In addition to the fact that the expansion ha- or the the policy response to the downturn uh, was more beneficial to. Uh, households that had more assets that were wealthier or had higher income, uh, and their demand was activated first. So you had a combination of the cost of production uh, and the distribution of income that led mm. to the to larger home production. Yeah. Doug, when you look at the housing starts numbers, I'm, I'm looking at some of the breakdowns here. Single family up half a percent, multifamily up five percent. So to a certain extent, this is partly the volatility of multifamily. But for, exactly. the past, for the past four months, we have seen starts come in stronger than analysts forecast. Yeah, we're, we're not in the camp that's uh, forecasting a, a downturn yet. We're, we've been continually in the camp that's gradual uptrend in, uh, in the starts uh, numbers. And the, this uh, supports that view. You know, to go back to something Tom was saying about his uh, favorite chart, a couple of other ways to look at this is if you look at the number of single-family starts per thousand population, that part of construction is only back to the trough of the prior two recessions. So that's one sense that we're way out of whack. The second way of looking at it is that sales, if you chart the existing home sales per new home sale, it's still way off of its long-term average, and that's a very stable number at about 5.5 to 1. Wow. Right now it's about 8.5 to 1. You know, I see a, a, a good housing number relatively, but CPI, uh, there's just no inflation there off of this month's work. Yields come in, Mike. We're now in four basis points, 1.51%. The two-year grind's lower, 0.6855. I don't want to make a big deal about it. But, Doug Duncan, I mean, I, Mike, I haven't heard this question on this show in days. What's the Fed do in September? Uh, we don't think they do anything. We actually yeah. don't have the Fed doing anything until next June. Uh, that's, not the, that's not the market wow. consensus right now. But we, don't, we see, if you look at that CPI number, the, the only two things that are driving that CPI number up at all are housing. And that's partly because of the supply problem, which is driving real prices and real rents up, uh, and health care. So there's that. If the Fed raises rate, it's not because of inflation. It's because they want to get a little more loft before the next recession. So they've got mm-hmm. somewhere to go. The uh, housing uh, CPI number, uh, housing up three tenths of the OER, the way they, you know, they're, they're converting equivalent for rental. Rent. Yeah, owner equivalent rent. Uh, the way they convert it for the CPI is up three tenths. So yes, uh, uh, we're, we're seeing stronger inflation in housing. The big decline seems to be this month that pushed. CPI lower. 
uh, was energy down 1.6%. percent mm-hmm. uh, the bottom line, though, is that uh, consumer prices aren't rising, so the Fed doesn't seem to have any need to get out in front of inflation. Yeah, we're, we'd be surprised if they raised in, uh, uh, in September. If, if they got strong numbers at the beginning of the fourth quarter before the December, then they might well move in December. They're itching to move, but they, don't, they haven't found yeah, the driver, and they certainly haven't convinced the markets. But, Doug, I'm looking at core CPI that came down a tick from last month. Granted, it's just one data point mm-hmm. and continuum. But if we all agree the theory is overshoot inflation to support and reflate economy, do you see any indication we're overshooting now with a possible exception of service sector inflation is a little I, elevated? I don't. Um, I you know Some people will cite the recent increase in uh, in income in the labor report, but if you go back to the 2000, to, I mean, uh, to World War II, out to 2000, average increase in that income number is about 3%. We're only at 2.6, and this is the, the what, the seventh year of this expansion? I, I don't see it. The uh, New York Fed President, Tom, is on Fox Business Network. Their turn for an interview with him. Bill Dudley says that uh, they are edging closer to the time for a rate hike, but they probably don't have to do a lot of tightening over time. So we'll that see. gets to that idea of vector versus one-off. Uh, here's a headline. Uh, Dudley says that a September rate hike is possible. So he was channeling Doug uh, Duncan. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure the market's going to buy that. Uh, but uh, before we let you go, Doug, since your expertise is housing, we are seeing prices go up on a on a rent basis uh, because that's the way the government calculates it. But in general. Uh, what are house prices doing? Are are we seeing a healthy level of price increases? House prices for the last four years have been increasing at about three to four times their normal inflation-adjusted rate of increase. It's because there's simply a lack of supply. That's both on the rental side and on the own side. So the apartment buildings, which were up in terms of starts this morning, um, uh, are being built in the Class A, that is the high-rent category. Nothing's being built in Class C. So if you're a, a new household formed, you're going in and paying above what would have been a normal cyclical rent. That means you're saving less to buy. But on the, on the builder side, or the own side, the construction's all taking in larger, higher-priced yeah. homes, not in the starter homes. <clears throat> so you have this cyclical yeah. relationship. Never enough time. Doug Duncan, thank you so much for Fannie Mae this morning. Two-year yield was a 0.69, and after Dudley and after these numbers, it's a 0.73. That's a sizable move. Mike McKee, what's the goodness you see there? Well, the uh, the, the goodness is that uh, we're getting – the kind of rates that uh, perhaps Bill Dudley thinks, well, we're still very low, but thinks are, are more appropriate. A lot of people think would be more appropriate for the economy that we have. You look at the industrial production numbers and the manufacturing <clears throat> numbers were up a healthy half percent uh, after three-tenths in June. So yeah. what you're seeing is, remember we saw the big question about manufacturing earlier in the year, and everybody said, well, did we, uh, did, are we entering recession? And that seems to yeah. be emphatically answered. No, there was this big drawdown of inventories, and so companies weren't making stuff, but now they're back to making it. Martin Haggerty with BlackRock, 
synthesizing all this with the mystery known as inflation-linked bonds. Martin, all the numbers today are pretty good, and yet inflation is quiescent. Why can't prices lift if we're getting okay American economic data? That's a, a very good question, Tom. I think the the sort of underlying components of today's data paint a, a pretty diverse picture where we've obviously had a, a significant appreciation of the dollar over the past 18 months, sort of leading up until the beginning of 2016, which continues to weigh on the goods component of the economy. And you guys talked about it in the prelude about sort of softer manufacturing data, a buildup of inventories that need to be worked down. And that is obviously costing a pull over goods inflation. What we are seeing is reasonably healthy services inflation with the exception of today's data. So going into this morning's CPI forecast, the market's expectation for core CPI was something in the vicinity of a 0.15 month-over-month print that would have rounded up to 0.2, and we missed to the downside of that by about 0.6 of a percent. And about big pardon, point oh six of a percent. And looking at the rationale for that miss or the reasons behind the miss, it, it basically came from two components. FS, which showed a decline in July of five percent, and rent away from home, sorry, or, or lodging away from home hotels, which showed a decline of around two point five or two point nine percent. So the volatility or the miss was driven by a couple of very, very, very volatile components. And as we've had this conversation in the past around previous CPI prints, we like to look at inflation or break down the inflation data into the low volatility and high volatility components. And what do you see there? High vol today can continue to decline given the, the measures that I, that I alluded to mm-hmm. um, airfares and uh, lodging away from home. However, the low-vol components continue to go up. You know, we had a a reasonable build in medical services inflation, which speaks to the underlying strength within that industry and the tightness of those labor markets driving services inflation higher within the medical care space. So our low-vol component kicked up and our high-vol component ticked down, which we think for the aggregated inflation indices, they tend to go where the low vol components go. And so we're still reasonably constructive that year-over-year core inflation will end 2016, somewhere in the vicinity of 2.3%. And given the recent declines in the dollar, potentially maybe even a, 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 a tad bit higher than that. When you look at the numbers today, you don't see uh, much besides energy that really signals falling prices. So when you we take that out of uh, the equation, uh, how fast do you think inflation accelerates? That will obviously depend on the, the pace of the elimination of slack in, in the labor market, which we're starting to see signs that, that wage growth is, is continuing to pick up as the unemployment rate continues to go down. We don't believe that the Phillips curve is flat, and we will continue to see an uptick in wages that should be enough to provide positive momentum towards inflation. Again, on the higher volatility components that are heavily influenced by commodity prices, as well as, as the dollar, 
I think the base effects are going to be positive going into year-end, which should push the year-on-year prints, as I said, up towards 2.3 after today's print of 2.2 with potentially risks to the high side. But that definitely does depend on the path of dollar and commodities going into into the end of the year. Mike, I want to – go ahead, please, Martin, please. No, I I think, you know, the inflation market has had a couple of interesting developments over the last 24 hours. In fact, I would – extrapolate that thought to to markets as a whole, where we obviously had the CPI data released this morning, but I think John Williams's published letter yesterday afternoon is extremely thought-provoking as we approach Jackson Hole at the end of the month in terms of what is the potential path of Fed policy for the future. We're going to have to come back and talk about that uh, with Martin because – this is uh, well, well. I don't know if we uh, have time today, but we have to get you back. Yeah, and talk we got to get you back this on. Is, this is brilliant. This is going to be, it's yeah. going to be a huge issue out in Jackson yeah. Hole. It seems the Fed is beginning some sort of rethink here. Yeah, we got to get Martin Haggerty on with BlackRock as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.